welcome to Contracast. My name is Kat Boyd. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, my lovely glamorous co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Today on the pod, we have a very special guest. We have Jonathan Shaffey, who many listeners will know um, from his work with Radical Independence Campaign, maybe some of his musings published in Scotland's paper for the middle class, The Herald. Hello, it's a great honour to be on Contracast. I've been listening for uh, many weeks, so it is actually very fun to be on. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, Thanks, that was really disingenuous. Yeah, I, I actually, I just needed to get that out of the way. So yeah, like, let's get down to business. Uh, what is that you've asked me here for in particular? Well, we know you don't really want to be on our pod because you think it's mean. Well, no, no, I don't. I mean, I like. I think the 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 last couple of episodes in particular, I really liked. Um, especially the one where it gets into the stuff around neoliberalism in Scotland because that's so absent from uh, the debate because uh, everyone likes to think that we live in this kind of progressive uh, uh, utopia in Scotland and actually uh, it's far from the case. It's not just far from the case, but I feel like everywhere I look on social media, there's a whole team of government bootlickers. Indeed. Spot the lie. Yeah, yeah I mean... Do you know uh, what I mean? Like, people are just, like, really, really into the government, and I find that quite weird. So I think that's I think that's partly true, um, but I also think that the last uh, few months I've also seen far more critical thinking, especially inside the independence movement, about the direction of the strategy um, and the, the plan around independence from the SNP leadership. So I do, th- I do think there is that. I mean, obviously, but, it's um, I'm giving you a provocation. <laughs> yes, uh, no, but I do think that. But I do think for most of the the commentating class, if you want to put it like that, they have been uh, completely lacking when it comes to making any real critique of the the Scottish government of the SNP leadership. Uh, we're starting to see a wee bit of that come through, but actually, it's taken a very long time, and I think that's largely because they have been obsessed with opposing Brexit. That's my view. I think what's happened is that they've looked at the world through the lens of exclusively the question of Brexit. And so the SNP have seen, been seen to be this kind of like beacon of progress. Uh, you know, they oppose Brexit, they support the EU, totally uncritically support the, the EU. And the nature of the discussion in Scotland around uh, these kinds of questions has been uh, to, I think, dilute what really needs to be quite a serious discussion about where Scotland goes in relation to the EU, but also about how that translates to a critique and to a, a debate about Scotland's domestic policy. What's interesting about that, but the way that consensus around the European Union is, it has united so-called unionist and pro-independence elements. Mm. But at the end of that process, who's in a healthier position as a movement, right? So obviously all the kind of big unionist papers... Um, <clears throat> celebrated Nicola Sturgeon's defence of the European Union, her willingness to, exact, for example, form a united front with people like Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair and stuff like that. They talked about how that was responsible, states-passing-like, etc., etc. See, at the end of all that, and it is now over, there's no question of Britain returning to the European Union or whatever. Yes, in the polls, independence is roughly, you know, top kind of, sort of 48, 49, 50, right? Whose movement is in a stronger position? Well, undoubtedly it's the latter in relation to who's actually making the political headway 
And let me just say... What do you mean the latter? You mean the Union or the Independence Movement? I actually think the Union. Yeah. And this is this is the contradiction in Scottish politics which actually hasn't, uh, uh, in a sense, hasn't been caught up with. I mean, look at it like this. Uh, I had an article um, in the the Herald, as, as Kat points out, the middle-class Scotland read it, apparently. Um, but in that article, I put out something I think quite simple but instructive, which is that it's true that we've seen a, a, a forward march when it comes to support for independence. But the spikes that have taken us over 50% have taken place twice. One was straight after the 2016 referendum on the European Union, and the second was straight after Brexit Day. Mm. The last poll that came out actually shows it dips back down below 50%. And I think the, the cohort of people who could be one to independence on the basis of, let's join the EU... I think that's highly unstable, but I guess as we'll come on to, and this is where I think the, the debate and the discussion really needs to open up inside the independence movement, is the idea that Scotland's going to be easily able to join the European Union, I think is a myth. And it's a very dangerous platform to posit all of the independence case uh, upon. Uh, I will just say this as well, though. Look, I respect the fact that the vast majority of people in Scotland voted to remain. I think the number will be increased since uh, 2016. Hmm. Absolutely respect that. But what I'm saying is, and I think what the, the, the discussion that we are going to have will outline, is that that doesn't mean that the entirety of the independence cause now must rest on EU ascension. Hmm. That, I think, would be a real mistake. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on the pod before, about um, the relationship of the independence movement more broadly, the SNP as leaders within the independence movement, and the question of, European Union membership but I think that so I've read your article in the Herald um, and I think that this is the the interesting contradiction I think with the position because whilst there is a there's a spike for independence after the referendum in 2016 when the result is out then there's another spike after Brexit day so looking at things on a purely surface level people could deduce that support for independence can be built on the Brexit grievance. Sure, yeah. However, when you actually look at what happened in 2014, or the years leading up to 2014, when historical support for independence is in the low to mid-20s, like, that's its historical mm. level, through leadership and grassroots campaigning, that transformed in quite a short space of time for such a um, question. I mean... There's another element of this, I think, that we have to kind of bring in, which relates to, to the points you've just outlined there, which is that there's a, a, a section of voters that voted yes in 2014 who are almost completely ignored now in the, the national debate. And those are yes voters who also voted to leave the European Union. And if you look at the statistics, there's a big section, a significant section anyway, of people who have changed from being yes voters yeah. Since the Brexit vote in 2016. The only point about this is John Curtis had stats out this week that suggested that 34% of uh, yes leavers, people who voted for independence and to leave the European Union, have gone over to no. And at the same time, 27% of no Remain voters have moved over to yes. Uh, and of course, there are more Remain voters, so that 27% is actually slightly larger than the 34% who've, who have left. Um, the big problem is this though the type of voter who would vote to leave both the United Kingdom 
and the European Union is gold dust, right? Because that's the type of person who is totally unafraid. They're not afraid of punishment from any establishment. That kind of voter is not going to be put off by Project Fear, right? A voter who votes to remain in the European Union and no in 2014 is much more likely to be a voter who can be swayed by the establishment. As simple as that. You're you're trading in hardcore voters for softcore voters. I think that there is a stereotype of the no voter in 2014 and the leave voter in 2016. Hmm. That is is kind of sort of two sides of the, the same coin. Because people who voted no, there's a lot of people who voted no and voted leave. Right, because of the way that the political debate has headed. Mm. So the no campaign during 2014 was definitely backed by a great deal of reactionary forces. The forces of capital were for no to independence. Mm. Exactly. I think that's right. Then the but the per- same person who votes no to vote leave in the EU referendum. Like I think this is a contradiction, right? So there's something else that's happening and I think it's to do with political leadership. Mm. And like the vacuum of political leadership and the fact that the left was stranded during the EU referendum debate without a coherent left-wing position, intervention by the left in 2016 during the EU referendum debate that actually shaped our built class consciousness. No, I completely agree with that. Um, And actually people have confused Nicola Sturgeon's leadership over Brexit with uh, leadership on the independence uh, cause. I think that's fair. What I point out in the article, right, and I'd be interested to get your views on this, is that the orientation of the SNP on Brexit has been lauded by many because they've argued that it has brought about a very good electoral results. But let's look at some of the, the bigger and deeper problems that we now face. Uh, we are now wide open to there being calls for a confirmatory vote, even if we were to get a yes vote for independence yeah. uh, because the SNP backed the, the people's vote it was such a dumb move I mean if you if, if you're going around saying the only way to get independence is a referendum yeah. at the same time as undermining the result of a referendum when it comes to Brexit that's Dur- a problem during, like, during the last general election the 2019 general election Sturgeon hinted that it might need that a, a yes vote might, might require more than 50% plus one in a referendum I mean, stuff like that is even worse. Well, that's exactly what I was going to come on to. Because not only are we open to a confirmatory vote, there are now lots of people who make comment on the independence movement, on the need for independence and so on, who say things like it's only viable if we reach 60% in a referendum because of the the Brexit shambles, as as it's often referred to. That, I think, is is the road to to disaster. And there's one other element I would like to introduce, and uh, this I would be really fascinated on your your views. If you look at the way the argument has been pitched around the stop Brexit stuff, it's been pitched almost exclusively around two things, one of which I think has virtue, and that is the question of freedom of movement, and we'll come on and discuss uh, our own attitude towards that, but mainly it's been about access to markets, Mainly it's been, you cannot possibly be a serious political outfit, you cannot possibly be making a serious political statement if you are arguing to leave something like the single market. 
Mm-hmm. Now you can get into the history of where the single market comes from. I think I would argue it's the it's it's absolutely a, the part of the the victory of Thatcherism. It's the rescaling of Thatcherism. It's Thatcher's to, idea. It's Thatcher's idea. Um, but I want to put this to you: is that if you make the argument for independence all about access to markets, then we've got a real problem because we might not get into the European Union. Very simply, our currency position of sterilisation wouldn't allow us EU ascension. There are a whole number of other issues that would be making it difficult as well. What about hard border? Uh, what about access to UK markets? Well, I actually think that movements for independence, part of what gives them their radical potential is that they challenge the logic of the marketplace. They challenge the undemocratic nature of market forces and of how corporations dominate the economy and so on and so forth. I mean, I think that this is... But this is the SNP that we're talking about, essentially, because the SNP are, um, they appear socially progressive, but actually they are economically stale. They're economically of the kind of, they're not, not saying that their policies are neoliberal policies, but they're of that, they're of that order. Do you know what I mean? So they're they're not going to be able to challenge the economic consensus. I think it's really difficult to get a party like the SNP to change its approach to how they see the economy, like their actual ideology, because they're never going to be left. It's always going to be centre. And I think that what happens with the European, the debate around the European Union is that they are able to take what appear to be the more socially progressive aspects of European Union membership, like freedom of movement, and use that as their, their approach, whereas actually their economic mentality and their economic ideology is almost completely in line with what the European Union says and does, which is blackmail Greece, remove democratically elected leaders from Italy. I mean, destroy massive parts of different European countries' economies. Yeah. Austerity measures. Like, and that's, I'm not saying that that's what the SNP are doing, but I think that they're part of that group. Like, that's actually where... if, if, If you remove yourself from our ideological position and imagine what the world looks like from the point of view of the SNP... I know exactly what they're saying quietly in bad rooms. There is only one world. It looks like this. The world is the neoliberal world. There is no alternative. Right? I mean, that's what they're all saying to each other. It's not that these people are um, dedicated readers of Hayek or something. Well, can it's, I, it's the, yeah. they think, that, that's what I mean. It's yeah. like they're in that vein. Yeah. Like in that sort of broadly, like, they're not going to challenge the status quo. I mean, as it, yeah. as it currently stands, they're administrators and they represent a managerial class in Scotland. Yeah. And they make decisions in the interest of the managerial class in Scotland. Can I slightly challenge a couple of points, though? Yeah. See, because I agree broadly with what you're, you're saying there. You're not become a government bootlicker, are you? No, no, quite the, op- <laughs> no, quite the opposite. Uh, no, because I, I agree with most of, of what's been said there. Maybe apart from two things, though. See, I think that the SNP is actively a neoliberal party when it comes to its um, uh, economic programme. I mean, look, just um, recently we've seen the um, the the court uh, rule uh, in England that the expansion of Heathrow, of, of the Heathrow runway, is illegal because of its impact on climate change. Mm-hmm. Now, the SNP position at the same time as declaring a climate emergency, is to back that runway. And how did they arrive at that conclusion? Because of the corporate lobby, right? 
Now, I actually think that the SNP has went on a bit of a journey since even 2014. I think that's true. I think it's now completely captured. By the way, I speak to a lot of people uh, who deal with uh, the question of lobbying, right? The SNP is completely susceptible to corporate lobbyists. And the Growth Commission proposals, I actually think, are a departure from even the white paper on independence in 2014, where, if you remember, Alex Salmon made a big deal of saying that they would, um, uh, you know, renationalise Royal Mail and so on and so forth, right? Um, the Charlotte Street Partners doctrine outlined in, 2000, in the, uh, the Growth Commission uh, paper is written as if 2008 didn't happen, but this is really important. It's now actually to the right when it comes to spending than even of the Tory government. Yeah, this is the Tory government is talking about more spending than the present uh, uh, position outlined in the Growth yeah. Commission. That's not just true of the SNP either, by the way. Currently, um, the Labour Party and the SNP are to the right fiscally of the Conservative Party. But what annoys me, right? <laughs> but th- this is what <laughs> really... Can I just make a point about that corporate sure, sure. lobby? Yeah. I don't doubt that that's what happens. I think that that happened when Labour were in power and Labour were in coalition power as well and Hollywood. Um, what bothers me so much about the cor- the power of the corporate lobby and the impact that it has on government is that there are prominent activists within Scotland who buy into the chummy chummy or Nicola chat as if she's a friend, Ooh. as if she's a pal. And like that that doesn't hold politicians to account. Politicians are waiting to buckle under the first bit of pressure to make decisions that are easy because they're in the interest of the corporate lobby and we don't have enough people who are talking truth to power. Now, I don't think I'm talking truth to power. I think I'm making a Mean Trots podcast. But there are a lot of people who are not actually challenging government decisions and it's... I think think a lot... I don't think people... Like who are in the bubble, and I'm in the bubble. Um, we're all in the bubble. We're all in the bubble, but I don't think people realise just how detached it's become from reality. So in the last week, for example, there's been so much celebration of this under nineteens or under eighteens bus for free, and all that. That's great. That's great policy and stuff. At the same time, uh, council tax has been hiked yeah. right across the board. Now this is a tax that both the Greens and the SNP have repeatedly said that they will scrap because it's a, a regressive tax. The bubble might not be paying attention to this, but the country is. The country is paying attention to the fact, to the fact that the hospital, uh, hospitals are a mess. Right? The country is actually... This isn't just unionist press stuff. The SNP have essentially failed on every major policy front. Can we come and back... People, are, people I, are kind of noticing it. I mean, I, look, I don't disagree with that. I, what all, all, I think we'd all agree, I, though, that those issues are still being deferred through the lens... Of the national question in Scotland, absolutely, yeah. and that, but that is that is a problem in yeah. itself. That 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 is the leadership of the independence movement. But can I just make one more point about this this whole question of of the corporate lobby and um, SNP and neoliberalism and so on? Um, we really need to get into the discussion about the difference between what the SNP say and what they do, mm. and this is what really annoys me about the Scottish uh, debate just now, is that no one's talking about this. And yet they know it's happening. If they don't know it's happening, they're not doing their job. If you're a paid commentator in Scotland, mm-hmm. right? Um, so let's. I'll give you one one more example. Um, Nicola says that there's a climate emergency. So what they've done is they've brought together a, a portfolio of green assets worth three billion pounds. Okay, their plan for this is to sell every one of those assets off to foreign investment. Okay, they're selling off and privatising and selling off all of our green potential in Scotland. 
Now, why is that not being discussed? This is this is yeah. a real yeah. that, but that's one of ma- that's one of yeah. many reasons. Just very lastly, very, very lastly on this, because I think it's dead important, right? Notice the language. Bernie Sanders uh, talked about and talks about a Green New Deal. And what's the most important word in that? Is actually the new. Now, the new in that Green New Deal phraseology is talking about social justice. It's talking about countering the way the economy is run today. It's not just saying we're going to have green capitalism. It's saying we're going to address climate change at the same time and through the same mechanisms as restructuring the economy to put people before profit. That's basically what it's saying, right? Now, the European Union, they talk about a green deal. Nicola Sturgeon, what does she say? You will never hear her say Green New Deal. It won't happen. She talks about a Scottish Green Deal. This is part of a whole sphere of climate capitalism which is hardwired in to how the European Union functions. So not only are we talking about not rocking the boat, we're talking about Scotland going backwards on these questions unless we can get some kind of debate going and actually get a movement going around these kind of questions. It only looks like Scotland is going backwards if you see 2014 as part of a continuum. Whereas I think what happens in 2014 is an aberration. Like, it's a break from the norm and the way that things usually happen. Because actually, the reason that I... The reason the SNP get away with a lot is because the record of Labour in power in Scotland, in Holyrood, is a disaster. It's terrible. It's so right-wing, you know, when you had... PFI. But also the war. And the war, yeah. And so you have, like... Jeremy Corbyn breaking the whip at Westminster as you have the MSPs in Scottish Labour voting to endorse yeah. this position. So I think that this is part of the problem is that like our parliament has never been truly radical. Its most radical was probably in its early formations when you had like the SSP involved. But even that I think is like it's almost like a blip mm. rather than this idea that we're getting better, we're getting better, we are progressing, we're progressing. What happens is that there's a flash moment of anti-globalisation and anti-war activists that elect socialists into the parliament to make it more radical. In 2014, you have a referendum that's built on the back of anti-austerity and anti-war sentiment that pushes the party in a particular direction. It's also very like politically astute of the SNP to say that they never backed austerity that they were never part of the aesthetic programme. And yet it's in the Growth Commission, yeah. It's in the Growth Commission. So those flashpoints, I think, have to be seen in isolation rather than as part of, like, a continuum of progress. It has to be seen, as you say, as intrusions by an element of the population into politics when they're not typically there. That brings about about a thought, um, which is something that um, that I've certainly dwelled on and I think others, uh, you know, including yourselves, have as well. And, you know, you take... I've, over the years, as, as I know you have as well, taken a huge amount of um, of uh, counter-argument, shall we put it, if we say it politely, on Twitter, whenever a criticism's been raised of the SNP. And I've always, in a sense, slightly admired, actually, the discipline of people. Because, actually, in 2014, you had a whole part of the movement get right behind the SNP. They joined it, they gave their money, they gave their votes... And they gave the SNP complete political hegemony in Scotland, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what has to be pointed out, and this is something which you actually have to have not just uh, the guts to do it, but you actually have a duty to do it. 
that the SNP were handed complete political hegemony. They didn't roll back the council tax that they said they were going to in 2010. They did nothing uh, when it came to things like land reform, or barely anything when it came to land reform. They have failed when it comes to uh, the question of education. They have cynically deployed uh, the independence referendum, and this is now uh, being uh, picked apart, and parts of the movement are now beginning to realise that that has been cynically deployed. But, and I'm going to mention it again, I think it's so important to mention it again, they took all their money, all their votes, all their political hegemony from a movement who said that they wanted justice in society, they wanted an end to austerity, and so on and so forth, and they gave the economic programme over to Charlotte Street Partners, who advocate austerity. Hmm. Now, you cannot, if you're serious about politics, you cannot let that go unsaid. And yet, and yet, all of the commentator class in Scotland, with a few exceptions, yeah. fail to mention this. And actually, it's really interesting, um, and I'll just end this little rant, I suppose, uh, is, is on this, is that I've noticed a big difference now. Because when you put this kind of idea forward, people are actually really beginning to recognise that actually what I've just outlined there is both true and reprehensible. And there needs to be a counter-movement which addresses this kind of question. We need to arrest the decline of the politics of the independence movement, which stem from the um, declining uh, politics from the SNP leadership and their relationship with the movement itself. I mean, I would vote for you. Well, <laughs> I don't think, I mean, is that a laugh at that point? I mean, I, but but you see my point, right? No, this seriously, is, I, I think that it's, and it's I a think really, you should repeat yourself loudly and often in the circumstances. And, and where are where is the discussion around this though, Cap? Do you know what I mean? Like because yeah, I mean we do some stuff on Twitter, we write some stuff here and there, and all the rest of it, right? We actually are in meetings, political meetings, in communities, in movements, and all the rest where this is happening, right? But where else is the discussion happening? I mean, I, I am stunned by just how uh, brainless, like the Scottish kind of media civic sphere is. Like I am actually stunned by. It. I mean, see if see the thing is right, people were bored rotten by people like me or the people on this podcast Ben Ray even more so right well I mean I don't know if you can say that he's not actually here to defend ba- himself banging but... on for like a year about the growth commission and all that yeah, stuff right? I know, I know. but see if we hadn't who would have talked about basically nobody and I'm not just pointing the finger at like pro-independence like lots of pro-independence media or figures or whatever they are like the unionist press in Scotland haven't got a clue out yeah, I mean, and it's like simple questions. Do you know what I mean? It's like really simple things, right? You can ask one question. See, if you're a journalist, right, you could ask one single question. You could simply put your hand up and say, you've built the case for independence around EU membership. Your currency proposal will not allow you to join. What's your response? Yeah. That question is not asked. I mean, I, I honestly, I mean, I don't know why it's not asked. Although maybe, maybe there is a reason why, actually, which is that, if you are pretty much wanting, I mean, if you basically defend the status quo, right, and if you basically think that uh, leaving the EU is uh, akin to some form of uh, heinous crime, right, then of course maybe you're not going to answer it. That might account for it. Um, can I can I ask you another question though, right? Um, because 
we've talked a lot about the EU. Just switch slightly, right? And I'm, I'm interested in your your views on this. Um, so those of us who oppose the EU, I think have got some really strong arguments. Uh, and I think that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe talk about some of those that we've not already kind of covered so far. Um, but I've got some specific views around the question of migration and the EU. Because I know a lot of people who completely agree with all of the critique about the EU, it's neoliberal, it's anti-democratic, etc., etc. But in the end, we'll say, but what about freedom of movement? And actually, it's a fair point. It's a fair point because freedom of movement, I think, is an important thing, something to be defended. And we need to oppose the xenophobia that comes along with a lot of the anti-EU movements. I'm just interested in how, how you deal with that. I understand and back, do you know I mean, the idea of freedom of movement as like a core principle of being a socialist. It isn't really freedom of movement in the EU. It's freedom of movement and of capital. It's freedom of labour and capital. Hmm. So you can't have one without the other, really, in the EU. So you're actually talking about, like, I think that has to be seen as one particular thing because that's actually, like, that's the tenet of the EU that relates to freedom of movement. Yeah. So it's not just that people can, like, they're free to move, like, as people, but those markets have to be open to capital at the same time. Yeah, I think people are sometimes deliberately confuse the phrase freedom of movement yeah. with the actual institution of freedom of yeah. movement as represented by the European Union, right? See, the thing is, there needs to be a hard debate on the left about how you maximise the right of workers to move freely around the world and at the same time uh, bring in measures to stop bosses trying to use that to drive down wages wages and conditions and so forth, right? This is the thing. And by the way, it's not a debate that can happen in the abstract. You can't just say... um, well, I think everyone should just be free to go with it wherever they want in an ideal world. What concretely has uh, freedom of movement in the European Union uh, contributed to, to, to society? First of all, it's a racial immigration policy. It's based on the racial idea of Europe. And as we know, one of the consequences is all of the people who have died in the Med right, yeah. and on the various... I think that that's ones. like the core point. The European Union version of freedom of movement racializes the question yeah. instantly. Freedom of movement as the institution actually exists was deliberately introduced to create supplies of cheap labor in a way that has, for example, drained the population from some of the European peripheries. In Hungary, the population has fallen. That's where Viktor Orban comes from, right? All the young people have left, creating serious problems in the internal economy, right? And Viktor Orban can't admit that, and nationalism in Hungary can't admit that, that people are running away from the homeland. So they say, the problem is that all these Muslims are coming in, right? The number of um, refugees who have entered Hungary is something like 10,000. It's absolutely yeah. nothing. The, the panic is over the loss of population. Now, here's the thing. Here's where Scotland fits in with this, right? See, over the last couple of weeks, it has been pathetic to see people who think, who keep, you know, who think they're left-wing and they're sort of anti-xenophobia and anti-immigration and stuff. Saying things like Scotland needs the cheap labour. Who's going to do all the care work? Who's going to be wiping old people's asses in old folks' homes? Who's going to be making the sandwiches? Who's going to be picking up the dog shit? Who's going to be etc, 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 right? These are reactionary anti-working class ideas. 
They, right? Of course. Uh, and yeah. they are, and they are, and those are obviously and racist and xenophobic yeah. ideas, right? Yeah. That there's a, a a lower tier uh, of the economy where a, a, where a cast of untouchables should be working. Right. right? So see, yeah, but, sorry. but I think the point that David is making yeah. is that those people are defending freedom of movement. Exactly. Yeah. It's, they're they're some of the people, not everybody, but some of the people who are defending freedom of movement think that we need the freedom of movement so that we can have a, a underclass of people who do the the jobs that nobody else wants to do, and that's yeah. the problem. Here's the way that you'd solve that problem, by the way, right? The policy response is get rid of the anti-union laws, right? Possibly even bring in closed shop legislation. Um actually have state agencies that enforce things like minimum wage and minimum working conditions, right? It's not immigration that pushes down wages. It's bosses. The stuff about the closed shop is a really important one. Like Absolutely. Having, a, having a union card. Absolutely. Like, what I find offensive, right, is that the people who are parading around with um, EU flags, right, um, some of it might be out of um, blissful ignorance. I don't know, right? But over 30,000 people have attempted to get into Fortress Europe since yeah. the early 90s yeah. and died. Yeah. yeah. Well, By the way, these are people with uh, brown and black skin, right? Yeah. Now, just to finish that point, right, what I don't want to hear as part of this debate is that it's impossible to oppose the EU and be an anti-racist. That, I think, is completely a misnomer. So that, that that's the first thing. The EU Commission has set up a new commission uh, to deal with immigration matters, right? European way of life. Exactly. Defending the European way of life. They directly mirror the rhetoric of the far right. I also want to draw you back to a comment Hillary Clinton and Tony Blair made. Uh, And people have often forgot about this. They're talking about reform of freedom of movement. People are under the assumption that there's not going to be a tax on moving around Europe within the structures of the EU itself. That, I think, is going to be something that is a big pressure especially as it competes more intensively with uh, the United States and China as the, as the global economy uh, goes, goes further and deeper into crisis as the decades I mean, progress. I, I, think that, I think that's totally right. I mean, I've, and I've also seen like, more said about freedom of movement in Europe and the, how reactionary Britain has become, but very few voices who are criticising the guy from Ryanair who says that exactly. men should be stopped at airports, men of a, quote, Muslim persuasion, whatever the fuck that is. Exactly. We know what that exactly. means. We know what that means. Yeah. It means brown people. That's mm. what he is. That's so, exactly. that language. So all of these people, that's a brilliant example, right? All of these people who have been saying, oh, look at the CEO of Ryanair. You know, he's saying that Brexit's bad. This must mean he's some kind of good progressive guy. He's calling at airports for there to be more intensive surveillance and checking on Muslims. Yeah. By the way, can I just say... Well, actually, the phrase he used was people of a Muslim persuasion. Or so he doesn't like, just mean Muslims. So he but doesn't it, actually exactly. mean Muslims. What he is being far more, like I think, overtly racist than that. I actually think he's been more reactionary on this question, if it was even possible, than Donald Trump. So here, so there are serious contradictions, right? They're not, and we are going to make sure. By the way, like I'm really passionate about this, right? We're going to make sure that this argument about the EU is blasted in to the Scottish public debate. It's not going to be, and and this this I guess brings me on to the kind of um, I guess the crescendo, right? Because here's the problem: 
See, if you're Scotland wanting to get into the EU, you have to bend over backwards. It's not only that in this country we are a, having a, a limited debate about the EU. No senior SNP politician will ever criticise, even in the mildest possible terms, of the European Union. Why? Because they're desperate to get inside it. So any of the stuff that we've raised, um, the European Commission, for example, how many times has it asked between 2011 and 2018 to suppress wages, its member states? Over 50 times. Won't mention it. Won't mention the, the migrant uh, deaths uh, that I talked about. And and also, and you know, I'll, I'll put this on your on your kind of lap and see what you, you think of it, is that in 2014, Nicola Sturgeon said that unless Scotland was backed uh, by the European Union as a member state, then those EU citizens, of which there are over 100,000 in Scotland, uh, could not be guaranteed... Uh, could not be guaranteed their rights and so on and so forth uh, in Scotland. In other words, uh, and you know everyone will shriek about this, but in other words, EU citizens were used as a bargaining chip in order to let Scotland into the EU. Simple as that, right? We need to turn the whole argument on its head because I don't think it's good enough for us just to say the EU is racist uh, and so on and so forth. We also have to say, okay, what's our proactive agenda? Now, here's the thing. I think we should be saying... We've got a new social contract with migrants in the, this country which guarantees their rights as citizens in this country regardless of whether we are in the EU or not. Now, I will say this and say it now because I think it's really important that we get this out here because see if there's any deviation from that. See if there's any return to the position of 2014 that says you must let us in otherwise all these EU citizens are going to lose their rights. That to me is a completely reactionary position but it'll be dressed up as progressive. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, you're not getting any counter arguments here. Yeah, and so <laughs> and so we should and so we should get on to this. Um and so we have to make the thing less less abstract as well. Um so, you know, I think I think I just think there are so many big issues in Scotland that we should be talking about and actually they're just not getting the kind of coverage that they should. Can I just uh thank Kat for uh bringing in some uh, nice little <laughs> Lemon drizzle shortbread, which actually is uh, really nice. They're not very good biscuits for a podcast, though, because they're really uh, crunchy. Yeah, they are a bit. I mean, like, I don't think that's really a problem, though. But it's because I'm off chocolate for Lent. Ah, right, okay. Oh, segue. Mm. <laughs> that was a genuine segue, though. I know, and I've ruined it by You've ruined it by putting out. Tell me about this uh, ritual you're involved in. Do you mean Lent? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I. <laughs> Well, you, I are you not? I'm like quite interested in the discipline of Lent. Yeah. So I have stopped eating chocolate. I've deactivated Instagram and I've deactivated Twitter. Mm. Which that last one, I am really suffering. Can I just With say? Yeah. I'm so like you won't really, be tweeting this podcast. Well, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. So I spoke to a friend who is a practicing Catholic, and she says in her family that apparently on Sundays it doesn't count. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can I just say, well, by the way, the Lent that yeah, Lent lasts for Sunday shouldn't count. So it's yeah, exactly. exactly. Days. No, exactly. But I was, I was also going to say that, um, you know, you're missing some really high quality debate and discussion on Scottish Twitter just now. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Let's not even go there.
<laughs> I mean, seriously, let's not even go there. No, I mean, I only deleted yesterday, so I'm probably up to date. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, okay. I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon. Okay, but do you think I should react? Can, some, can someone, like, I don't know, tweet Connor and tell us whether that's okay if I check Twitter on Sunday? Am I allowed a special dispensation on a Sunday? Well... It was never like that when I was a kid. Um, I, I, I it feels mean, a bit... I feel... I don't know. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and I can't spend 24 hours off Twitter. <laughs> this uh, is the age of decadence. Well, maybe. I mean, that's a debate in itself, isn't it? Uh, are we going to get back to the EU or something like that? Because... Uh, you have to give up the fucking EU. Right, well, let's talk. Days. Well, let's. <laughs> no, that's you. That's you. Is that me? Is that my lens? You have to. Well, actually, the Pope said that for Lent, people should give up trolling. Well. But, but now but... I read in the press that the Pope, uh, the day after he has done his big mass and shook everyone's hands, he's, he's been struck he... down. Well, no, seriously, he's been. He's sick. Mm. Had to cancel his engagements. <laughs> Amidst the coronavirus outbreak, and I'm really worried about it personally. I mean, I know you two heathens think it's hilarious, but yeah, well, I am genuinely worried about it because he is one of the few radical leaders we have left. Yeah, um, I mean, we were talking about this. Sorry, did you just say the Pope is one of the few radical leaders we've got left? Yes. Well, yeah. So I mean, if you count them, right? Um, The Pope, Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, and we were saying just before we came on here, that's because everyone under the age. What about Mike Russell? Who? Shut up. <laughs> Everyone under the age of about 75 is too pomo. Postmodernism is a disease. I'm glad that you um, extrapolated from pomo, postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to get into this at some point, or rather you do. I mean, I know you have in various podcasts attempted to talk about some of these issues, right? But uh, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, without sounding like completely abstract about the whole thing, postmodernism is completely <clears throat> destroying the left. I mean, actually, I think there are some insights that you can draw from some of the postmodern theory, uh, you know, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's it's getting to a point where there needs to be a serious reevaluation of the left. I actually think Sanders is teaching us a lot in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way that he speaks to people and the way that he, he brings people together, his kind of analysis is really strong. And, you know, that's something we've got to look towards. This is something that we're going to have to consider going forward. I think we need to keep talking about it. Do you know what I mean? You know how people say that thing about like a problem shared is a problem halved. Yeah. We should just keep talking about it. Think of this as therapy. Yeah. The the thing that the thing about Bernie Sanders is such an old fashioned phenomenon. Like he's taken the idea of a universalized healthcare system to an American youth scene, almost completely vacated of those sorts of ideas. No, but it is. No, no, I know, I agree, I agree. I was just. But, so, listen, fight. I know. I see, before Bernie Sanders turned up, what was what was the United, what was the left in the United States talking about? It's probably best not going into it, to be honest. See all the people when Joe Rogan said that he would be interested in voting for Bernie Sanders. All of the people that said Bernie Sanders must disown Joe Rogan mm. and disown his support. That, to me, in a nutshell, is the problem with a part of the left. Yeah. It, I mean, seriously, like, we have to win people to the ideas of the left. I mean, the idea that you would disown just uh, Joe Rogan, uh, I mean, what, what would that tell everyone in the United States who's a potential voter for Bernie Sanders? That you're not wanted. You're not wanted. Yeah. If you've ever voted Trump, if you've ever... You know what? 
if you've ever done anything which isn't in the lexicon of these people's idea of the left, you are not wanted. We don't want your votes, your money, your activism. We don't want you. In fact, you can go vote for Trump. That's basically what that says. That's the kind of thing that needs to be completely, completely uh, taken out of the left. As I was trying to find this uh, quote from my favourite Mark Fisher essay, which is Exit in the Vampire Castle. Ah, it's excellent. I still think is a really important piece, although it's, I mean, it's dated now in terms of its references to Owen Jones as he was in the People's Assembly, um, Russell Brand when he was still doing his politics, um, sort of bit, he was on with Paxton on Newsnight. But it talks about how, the essay talks about how solidarity has become impossible and moralism exists everywhere. And that that has become what people see as the left. And it's defined by, like membership of the left is defined by guilt and fear. And fear not because the right wing is on the rise, but because we've essentially allowed like bourgeois ideas of subjectivity, identity to contaminate the entire movement. So previously when the left was driven by, so when I say like class politics, I don't mean in a class reductionist way, but it was about building solidarity between different like liberation strands, so it's like women's liberation or LGBT rights, like all of those different strands are anti-racist strands. It was defined by solidarity and communitarianism. And what Mark Fisher describes is the vampire castle, which is that kind of, that identitarian college culture and the people within it, like the academic ideas that express themselves as, you know, Russell Brand is a sexist or do you know what I mean? Like that's what the vampire castle is. And he says that the vampire castle was born the moment the struggle not to be defined by identitarian categories became the quest to have, quote, identities recognised by a bourgeois big other. And that's Mm. why I see like constantly repeating itself on the left is that people are people across classes are uniting on identity issues yeah but people in singular classes are not uniting on that basis and through identities does that make sense that makes absolute sense i think this is what sanders is really achieving you know that uh, the individual stories that are being told uh, through the sanders campaign speak to women speak to black people uh, and all other kind of uh, groups, but they do so in a way which brings people together. Um, I mean, look, I'm someone speaking right now as a kind of bearded, Asian-looking man, right? I'm half Pakistani, uh, which you might not know, but in uh, this part of the world isn't necessarily flavour of the month. Uh, I've been stopped at airports many times on account of my uh, on account of the way I look. In fact, when I tried to get into the United States, I was taken in for interrogations, flanked by. Uh, to uh, armed armed uh, machine gun toting police, right? So look, and I've had my fair share of um, of people um, shouting racist uh, things on political stalls and so on. But you know what? I don't want. I don't want allies. Okay. Yeah, I hate the, that the, the whole uh, idea of allies is is I think flawed. What I do want is comrades. I want people who are willing to go and engage with people who, yes, have bad ideas about immigration, have bad ideas even about uh, some of the bigger questions uh, that are associated with the kind of big dilemmas of, of the modern world, right? We need to engage with people. We need to win them round. And I've had experience of doing this. I put on Twitter the other day about you know experience I had 
with a guy who was shouting racist and anti-immigrant stuff at me on a political stall. And we had a discussion and you find out that this is someone who's bitterly angry, but bitterly angry at the wrong pair, at the wrong people. And you're actually able to win people around. So what I don't want in a situation like that is for someone to hold my hand and say, I stand with you as an ally. I want Against someone this angry guy. Exactly. Yeah. I want someone who's willing and prepared and ready and able to go and talk yeah. and win this individual round to our to our set of ideas. To have those difficult conversations. Exactly. And by the way, this is what Trump's good at. But I think the interesting thing for me about Bernie On the other side, yeah. Is that he doesn't talk about himself oh. or his experience of struggle or oppression because that actually makes him quite different from say the squad for example Sanders Sanders has become an avatar for other people's rage yeah and if you if you put yourself into the story it's harder to do that it's harder if you say listen here's my experiences in life and that's why I'm left wing people automatically start questioning whether or not they're authentic enough or this is really their identity that get involved in for Bernie Sanders to say, no matter who you are, you should have access to free healthcare, right? I mean, see, see how, how we reference postmodernism. Famously, postmodernism, postmodernism militated against so-called grand narratives. You shouldn't be saying anything general about people at all. You shouldn't be saying everyone is united by the need for free healthcare. There's something, by the way, this is where the traditional right-wing critique of socialism is that it's totalitarian because you are making claims upon other people, right? You are saying, you should have free healthcare. I'm not just saying I should have free healthcare. I'm saying you and everyone you know should have access to it. And furthermore, I also think that this tax regime should be uh, uh, instituted by the state so that X people have to pay for it. You're making claims on other people regardless of their autonomy, right? Isn't it strange that the postmodern left is afraid of doing that, has essentially internalised the right-wing critique of socialism in the 20th century. I have a right to say what's good for me. That's at the number of identity Because of my experiences, because of what I've been through, I have the right to dictate the political settlement for me. But I don't have the right to pronounce on a political settlement for anyone whose experiences I've not had. Now, no national political project can work like that. No radical political project can work like that. The very essence of politics is power. The very essence of power is projecting your designs for how society should be onto other people. You are literally, the whole idea of civilization is that, that there is a common condition under which all human beings should live, regardless of their individual identities and experiences and so on. And if you want to be part of a radical political project, you have to get back to that and away from individualism, moralism, uh, and stuff like that. I mean, I am slightly uh, frightened by what you say, though, as well. Like, just And, and obviously, like, listeners can't see, but uh, I can also see uh, the way that you <laughs> talk about these matters. We do get really into things. We get, like, a sort of John Knox look. Yeah, um, look, I fundamentally agree with what you were saying there, David. But I will also say this, right, which is, look... A big part of the reason why various forms of identity politics have come to supersede the kind of grand narratives that you're talking about, the kind of uh, strategies for power uh, that we require, is because of the decline 
of of working class struggle for all kinds of reasons. It's rooted in the the process of of neoliberalism, a, a four decades long project uh, in this country, and also we have to be really honest about this that the organisations uh, that uh, grew up around the kind of analysis that you're talking about have also went into stark decline, into crisis, and in many cases are now no longer. So look, we we have to be we have to be we have to have a level of we have to be measured with this. I think there's a debate to be had. Um, I think it's a key debate on the left about how we centre individuals' experiences of the world with a collective project. And I think it's messy and complex. And I think actually, you know, you know me, you know my politics, and you know I agree with everything you've just said there, David. But I also think we need to we need to bring people into the discussion. You know, we need to bring people who who do have ideas around identity politics and so on into the same room and have a discussion about how we go forward collectively. Because I think that's that's really crucial. I want to make one more rant about this. I would also. <laughs> but I mean, I don't. Who's running first? Um, I would like to hear Kat, I mean, because I know... Well, no, I, I think that what I have seen recently is that the growth of identity politics is starting to spread into class identity politics. That's very that true. People don't really think about class as relational. They don't think about it as, like, in relation to the mode of production or to other classes. They see it as part of an identity so that how you talk and what you wear and where you shop determines whether you're working class or not so you even end up where there's like moves in the Labour Party I think to have like a working class network oh god the same the way caucus they have, yeah, in branch, like, yeah. yeah that's absolutely terrible I know I know it's really frightening but I also think that when you then layer on what happens to working class people when they do get a platform in wider society is that the same kind of the same layer of people who are inside the vampire castle, if you like, think that working class folk who are in the public eye lose a degree of authenticity. Do you know what I mean? There's this idea that the working class should be kept in poverty because that's what makes them it's like hidden by its authentic yeah. and salt of the earth. It's marginalised like, by its nature. All yeah. that sort of stuff. But you know they want to keep yeah. they want to keep that as a sort of like as a kind of decation of an other that yeah. they can they can fight on behalf of be an ally too exactly if you like yeah yeah so but, i see that and then on top of that again you have the fact that we're sitting here talking about solidarity but solidarity has basically been legislated for and it is illegal in this country it is illegal yeah for workers to show solidarity with other workers so class solidarity amongst the working class is illegal and I, I know that that's an old-fashioned type of argument, but I think it's one that's continually worth making because attacks on the trade unions in the next five years are going to be much worse than I think anyone really anticipates. And not so old-fashioned if you look at France, where these kind of questions are, are you know, really at the front of centre of, of what's going on. Uh, by the way, do you know who loves working-class identity politics? Is middle-class liberals. Hmm. And they love it, right, because they get to opine about the the potential virtue of working class people, etc., etc. But what they don't have to confront is the fundamental antagonism that exists in capitalist society yeah. and the potential of working class people, not just, you know, to be able to get an education, so on and so forth, but to run society, right? And this is the thing that uh, neoliberalism has done such a good job at, 
is it's managed to incorporate into its own culture, into its own economic system and so on and so forth, the means of resistance. It's managed to incorporate the equalities agenda. It's managed to incorporate um, all of the identities that grow up around the kind of politics that you've just outlined there, Kat, and, and David as well. And so if you want to break with neoliberalism, it's interesting because I know we're coming towards the end. It kind of goes full scale, full, full circle back to what we were saying about the SNP at the very start. Mm-hmm. And this is what people have to understand about neoliberalism, is that neoliberalism can afford to be good on LGBT politics, good on anti-racist politics. I'm saying good in inverted commas. But it still will require racism. It still will require homophobia to exist in society. It requires these divisions to exist. And so if we're going to confront neoliberalism, we also have to expose the fact that you cannot really be a neoliberal and an anti-racist. Just, or or, or whatever it might be. What you're describing is the process of the actual ruling class propagating ideologies of the individual, but what they're actually doing is showing class solidarity. Exactly. Yeah. That in a nutshell is it, in my opinion. Mark Fisher, isn't it? Yeah. I was going to say one last thing about that essay, right? What, Exiting the Vampire Castle? Exiting the Vampire Castle, which is... I think that the... And I've always said this because I've been whinging on about this subject for years, right? But there is... There is a late question in that essay about what morality is actually for, right? It often occurs to me that the left's version of moral discourse is very like inferior to the moral traditions that it has adopted that discourse from. So the left is, um, in many ways, it's kind of representation of like a secularised Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. It's not untrue mm-hmm. to say that the basic moral values that underpin progressive politics are part of that long lineage uh, over 2,000 years, right? There's a, there's a, and I'm partly throwing this in to counterbalance the Lent chant, right? But you know, in the Calvinist system of theology, right, there is a, uh, there's a doctrine called total depravity, right? And what that, that sounds good. Yeah, what that says is that, well, literally human beings are totally morally depraved, right? So you're born in sin, you live in sin, you die in sin. And the only thing that can save you from that situation uh, is Christ, right? Think about how radically more egalitarian that attitude to morality is than the sort of morality that Mark Fisher says goes on in The Vampire's Castle, right? There's well, a, yeah, because sin is a great equaliser. Sin's a great equaliser, right? So in, in, mm. in, in, in the Christian system... You're, you're a sinful person. Nothing that's good about you has come from you. You have to be thankful for it, to this disembodied uh, force. But it's not like moral self-improvement in the 21st century where I acknowledge that I am a bad person and then I go on a journey and I become not a bad person. Yeah. In Christianity, that never happens. Yeah. The point where you're not a bad person never arrives. Not in this life, anyway, right? That is an inherently more radically egalitarian idea than this intense search by parts of the modern left to become moral, to judge others for not being moral, to encourage people to go on a a kind of moral purity quest. Like This is a lot of the language... I I think that the, the moral purity quest that people are encouraged to go on 
is fundamentally about themselves. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's displacement. Not about, yeah. yeah, it's it's self improvement, which is that is neoliberalism. Yes, yeah. There, there, there's a, there's almost this idea that you can consistently upgrade yourself. Yeah. As though you were a car, even a collective project as old as something like Christianity or the Reformation required a more universalist approach than much of the kind of modern cultural discourse, which is so badly broken down by individualism. And that spirit of competition, I mean, ultimately that's what this comes down to. Like, it's such a cliche to say of the capitalist system that it needs to convert every social process and dynamic into a competitive one. But I don't understand why people can't see that right under their noses with this. Well, You're being, being constantly asked to present yourself as superior to people around you. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I know we're coming towards the end. I guess my kind of last uh, kind of comment on this would be that um, I, I hope it's something that's also come through in the podcast, right? Because, you know, we're talking about big issues. We're talking about identity politics, about the European Union, about... Bernie Sanders, about the, 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 the independence movement and the SNP. We're talking about big issues where people have um, very different views and opinions. And uh, I suppose my closing comment would be a bit of a plea, which is that we need to be discussing together. There'll be lots of people who listen to this, right, who will completely have disagreed with uh, some of the things that, that, that you or I have said in this podcast. But partly I think what we need to do is to rescue discourse, to rescue debate, because it's becoming now increasingly difficult to even have a discussion. And I know Twitter's particularly bad for it, but it's now seeping into the whole of the mainstream media, to the whole of to the whole of the public square. And so if you've disagreed uh, with uh, what's been said here, let's have a discussion and let's have a, a debate about, about how we move forward. Uh, and I do say, uh, as I say, just in, in closing as well, on, on, on that discussion there. Uh, look, there's not there's there's been lots that I've learned from uh, people who we've been criticising when it comes to the postmodern left. I actually do think there are insights to be taken uh, from some of the from some of the the thinking and the discourse and the theory that's grown up around that. What I think it lacks, though is the thing that David was talking about. It lacks that grand narrative, which I think is defined by a Marxist analysis of how society works, and importantly, not just of how it works, but of how you change it. And that, I think, is is where I'll I'll end. I think this has actually been a really good discussion. Um, David, I really enjoyed what you were saying about about morality. Mm. Because we've talked before about Nietzsche on the podcast about like the true meaning of that phrase God is dead mm. but really what's happening now and the type of morality embodied in the vampire's castle is what Nietzsche predicted when he said that something way worse than Christianity was on its way mm-hmm. um, and I think that we should do some we should maybe have like a longer discussion about I don't know can we call it something like dismantling the vampire castle yeah, where we actually yeah. talk about the way that it feeds on people's anxieties and converts the suffering of people um, into academic capital, converts people's suffering into tr- the transactional, um, like a transactional component of the discourse. Um, and I think that would be probably quite useful. I mean, I would really like to hear 
uh, both of yourselves in conversation with someone who would uh, have a great disagreement with the kind of politics that we've just outlined in the last 10 minutes or so. I actually think that would be a very useful discussion. Uh, not least because the mere fact of that being discussed, I think, takes the, the whole debate forward. Um, and I think I think everyone could learn something from it. I think we should also have a special God episode, episode of the podcast. <laughs> yes. Are we you going to get God a, on? We should have a debate yeah. between the pro-God left and the anti-God left. Wait, wait, wait. We're on the pro-God left. We're on the pro-God left. Who's on the anti-God left? Well, tons of folk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it depends what you mean by these terms. Like, I think I would need them like, defined a bit more. So, but... Probably. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. If you are a wokester or hate God... Uh, <laughs> if you hate get God, touch. get in touch with this podcast. <laughs> we want to hear from you. By the way, can we uh, like see the words woke, gammon, like loads of other different words like that? I mean, we should actually... like They need to be expunged. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like... It's just doing nothing to help anyone. If uh, you know, there's all that wokester stuff and gammon stuff, and do you know what I mean? It just gets to a point what, where it's just like, wait, so what this does is any what of this mean? You know, what did people call woke before people called it woke? It wasn't just political correctness. There was some. There was another term. It was for like Ted Paul was probably in between those two. <sighs> no, there was something. I'm sure I remember. People talking about that type of... I've had various abusive like, phrases over the years. I mean, what I will say <laughs> is that you have been quite steadfast in this position for a long time. Because I remember, trip down memory lane, I remember me and you having this massive fight in a kitchen in Greece. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the day after Syriza won. The election. What was that debate? Now I'm interested. We had this big fight about feminism. Right. I think I like, I mean, there was lots of booze involved. We were drinking ouzo. Mm. Um, I mean, I dare not ask the the debate. We had an argument about feminism. I think I probably stormed off and called David a misogynist. (laughs) (laughs) You dare dare not ask. We can't remember. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it must have been good then. But I mean, seriously, like, I think that. You know, lots of people who try and do podcasts and stuff, right, on social media, right, you know, feel the need to end up, you know, labelling it as, like, some element or other of the culture war. But maybe it's just because I hate the culture war. I don't have an opinion on the culture war. I just think, like, we need to actually just have serious discussions about politics and what the hell we're going to do about uh, the world, whether it's climate change, coronavirus, or... um, We didn't even talk about coronavirus. No, we didn't. I mean, are we going to... What I mean, this has me. I think people will be so intrigued by what we've got to say after listening uh, to our previous comments about other matters, about uh, our views on coronavirus. Do you know? I mean, that's probably let's chuck in five minutes on the coronavirus. Everyone, very quickly, you're going to die from the coronavirus. No, that's not true. You're going to get the coronavirus, but only the very old and the very young will die. Which, as we were discussing, means that the entire class political socialist movement is about to die. So no, I, I, I think that everyone would uh, would recognise, right, that coronavirus is something which is now becoming uh, a bit more of a problem than we first might have imagined. Uh, but it's actually interesting to look at how the, the whole of the market system uh, works around something like coronavirus and how it relates to investments that are made and so on and so forth. It's, it is it's very interesting. There's a lot to say about that. Uh, but 
fundamentally, is this going to mean that we all have to stay in our own homes, can't attend political demonstrations? Will cops still go ahead, for example, if it's still well, about at that well, point? We were having a discussion earlier about the US election. Actually, coronavirus is a plot by the CIA to get rid of Sanders. Or Trump. Or Trump. Both. Both. Uh, well, Even one swift, because they're both old. They're, and they're both, they're both I'll tell the you who's dead. Biden. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... He will succumb rapidly. He is. I mean, I think that one of the great skills that Trump has got, right, not to sound too fanatical about the whole thing, right, is the way that he can uh, call someone a name and it just works. It's so perfect. It just sticks. You know, yeah. sleepy Joe. Yeah. I mean, it really does work. I like right? Jeb Low Energy Bush. <laughs> I like to call people Low Energy as a middle name. You're definitely David Low Energy Jameson. Yeah, and this is meant to. This is the pinnacle of democracy, by the way, in the world. Is uh, (laughs) this is the state of things? As long as Uh, Mini Mike doesn't buy the presidency. Yeah. I bet yeah. he buys up all the cure for coronavirus. No, that's what the sort of thing that might happen. <laughs> and right, offers it to his supporters, yeah. <laughs> but does everyone else die? W- but doesn't offer it to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. No, he'll never offer it to Bernie Sanders. No, no, no. That is no. a serious. That is, I mean, look at the size of some of Sanders' rallies. Like twenty thousand people in Texas or something, right? Seriously, if this becomes a worldwide pandemic, the the authorities are not going to let twenty thousand people gather anywhere. No. I mean, and what what kind of numbers are we talking about for COP in Glasgow and the I heard eight hundred thousand people might be coming to Glasgow. Have yeah. they not heard of Scotrail? These people. I mean, what the hell do they think is going to? They are going to be stranded here <laughs> forever. <laughs> and do you know what I've got images Seriously, in my mind? forget coronavirus. Scotrail. Eight hundred thousand people trying to use Scotrail, right? I've got, <laughs> images, <laughs> I've got images in my mind, right? People like, will riot. You know, in pictures Seriously. like. Uh, in India, where you see thousands of people on top of the train. Yeah, that's right. right? That's, that's what right. it's going to look like coming into Glasgow Central Station, right? That's right. There's going to be thousands of suits standing yeah. and sitting on top of the train, hanging on to the train, falling out the window. Yeah, exactly. And half of them have got coronavirus. <laughs> so on that note, uh, I mean, I don't know if there's much else to say about that, but seriously. Mask up, folks. <laughs> I just want to know the look in uh, Scott Rail Towers uh, when they're told 800,000 people <laughs> are, co- yeah. are coming yeah, to Scotland. Trying to get through the ticket barriers at Queen Street Station. Yeah, exactly. coming off. <laughs> so not only are all these people, the, the world's press the world. will be there. The whole of the attention is going to be not on climate change, but on the failing infrastructure that is Scott Rail. <laughs> the, the Maybe day, finally something will be done about maybe. it. The other day... Every train in Scotland just about stopped because there was some like light sleep. <laughs> <laughs> how are they gonna die? How are they gonna deal with eight hundred thousand people dying of coronavirus? By the way, this is an excellent way to the end of the podcast though, because whether you're postmodern left or Marxist, we can all have a laugh about the coronavirus. coronavirus. Is a great whether and Scott Rail. No, and Scott Rail. Whether you're a unionist or nationalist, it doesn't matter what your view on we the can EU is. Hate of Scott Everyone can unite on saying Scott Rail is utter. Pish and needs to go. I mean, seriously, I'm getting really wound up here at the end of the podcast, right? But that is a, a serious point of unity uh, that we can end on, I'm sure. Sounds good to me. Thanks very much for coming. No problem. Hope you have me again. Speak to you all again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.